Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Today will be the last formal uh, kind of teaching time we have for this year. So we're going to work through the doctrine of Christ, His person, who He is as the God-man. He is fully human and He is fully God. We're going to walk through that tonight. Next week we will be in the sanctuary for the Awana children uh, presentation. It's a Christmas play with some scripture verses that they've memorized. So we're going to all be in there next Wednesday night at six o'clock. And I think we're finishing up in here with, uh, with I, I want to say cookies. I'm not sure if I'm telling that correctly, but we're going to have kind of a reception after the fact Wednesday, that Wednesday night. Um, school is out next week. So next Friday is the last week of school. So on the 21st, I believe, the Wednesday, two Wednesdays from tonight, we will gather back in here, but it won't be for a formal teaching time to walk through our Bible study. We'll have a prayer and praise time. I've been thinking about what that last Wednesday night of the year that we would be here should be. And uh, what I think we ought to do is just come ready to share a few praises. I've got some things I need to share as a praise, and we'll pause and thank God for what He's done. We'll pause and pray and ask God to intervene. So if you've got something that happened this year that you need to praise about, show up on the 21st. It may be six of us. It may be 60 of us. I have no idea how many are going to come. But we'll spend about an hour, hour and 15 minutes just kind of celebrating what God's done in your life, what God's done in the life of our church. Uh, and I think that would be a good way to kind of finish up our year on these Wednesday nights. We'll take the next Wednesday night off. I believe that's the 28th. Uh, around the holidays, and then we'll pick back up on our teaching discussion on the first Wednesday night of January when school kicks back in. And that night we'll go to the work of Christ. We'll talk about what he did in terms of his atoning work, his crucifixion. Uh, And then we'll probably have one more night on Christology talking about the resurrection and beyond that. And then we'll move um, either to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit or the doctrine of salvation I haven't decided which direction we'll go. There's, there's a couple of different options for that, but that's, uh, that's the schedule coming up. This upcoming Sunday, we'll have our final uh, elder vote for a lay elder. That will be a vote on Marsh Lyle uh, this upcoming Sunday. Thank you for your affirmation of the church budget on this past Sunday and also uh, for your uh, deacon ballots and deacon votes. You can read in the beacon the, number, the deacons that were selected. One final note is we will have an elder commissioning service on Sunday evening, December the 18th, to uh, affirm uh, and commission our lay elders in the life of the church. Sunday evening, December 18th at 6 p.m. We'd love for all of you to be here. It'll be a time for us to be encouraged and pray over uh, our new elder candidates in the life of Wilkesboro Baptist Church. I think that's all I've got schedule-wise. Did I miss anything? Anybody in here know something going on that I didn't mention? Fantastic. So we're going to talk about the doctrine of Christ, His person. We're going to look at Him being both God and man. We're going to look at the issues of Him uh, being sinless. And there are, we're going to be Scripture heavy. So last week, what I did is walked through the Christological heresies. In other words, where, where did people go wrong in terms of how they understood who Jesus is? What we're going to do tonight is kind of come behind that and look at what does the Bible say about Jesus? 
We affirm that Jesus is fully God. We affirm that Jesus is fully man. Well, why do we do that? Well, we do that because that's what Scripture teaches us. And so we're going to just walk through a variety of places in the New Testament where we can affirm the fully human nature of Jesus, and we can also affirm the fully God nature of Jesus. Now, that's going to be hard for us to grasp. That's okay. We've got to affirm what what the Bible says, and so that's where we are. So the first point is this. Jesus was a real person. He was fully human. Jesus was absolutely 100% fully human. Let me give you some instances where we know this is the case or some illustrations from Scripture that affirm this. The first one is Jesus became hungry and needed food. See that in Matthew chapter 4. He was hungry. This is in the Temptations. He went and he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And the text says he was hungry, which is why the first temptation was about food. We're going to come back and walk through that section a little bit more in detail tonight. But he was hungry. Only people get hungry. God doesn't need food to survive. He has always been without a meal. He doesn't have to have food. But Jesus, being fully human, was hungry. He became weary and thirsty. John chapter 4. This is when he met the woman at the well. He was tired, so he sat down. He became thirsty, so he asked her for a drink of water. He's fully human. He was thirsty. Matthew 8. Uh, he became sleepy and needed to rest. Listen, if there, were, if there was one person that if he completely relied on his deity all the time, one person that didn't need to sleep, it would be Jesus. Okay? God doesn't sleep. Uh, our, our choir is going to sing about that, testify about that when they sing, uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. God does not sleep, uh, nor does he slumber. I mean, he... He's not dead. He doesn't go to sleep. He's always awake, right? Jesus, if anybody didn't need rest, Jesus in his deity didn't need rest. But yet he got tired and he needed to take a nap. He needed to sleep at night. He needed to rest the weariness of his body and his person. He was fully human. He humbled himself to the vestiges of human frailty. Just like us. So, Wives, let me just tell you something to encourage you or to to bless you or maybe for you to bless your husband. If your husband says he's tired and needs a nap, he's in good company because Jesus was tired sometimes and needed a nap. (laughs) And Matthew 8 text, he slept in a boat in the middle of the storm. Talk about having a not anxious life. That's Jesus. So he was... He was tired. He was sleepy. He needed rest. The next one is Jesus periodically retreated to rest from ministry in the crowds. He retreated. He took time either just by himself. He would go up on the mountain to pray. He would pray through the night on some occasions. He would bring his disciples and retreat from the crowds and just pray with them, just minister to them. Uh, I, I know some of you realize this. When you have really big and stressful things going on in your life, things you're responsible for, there, there's, a, there's a time where your you're kind of adrenaline amps up and you're able to do a little bit more in terms of energy and stamina. But then at the end of that, you crash. You crash because your, your body cannot handle 
the, the, the adrenaline rush any longer. And so Jesus would retreat. I don't know how many of you are watching the, the episodes of The Chosen. I, I'm not, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not usually a big fan of taking the scripture and putting it on screen. Because I'm a, I'm a theology geek and nerd and I'm a critic. And so whenever I watch some of that and, and I, I see where they kind of go off of Scripture, I just, I, I'm done with it. It really frustrates me when you can't just say, do what Scripture says, right? The Chosen seems to do that really well. Certainly they add in stories, they, they add in kind of background elements, but when they come to Scripture, they follow Scripture, the series does. And one of the things that I find so fascinating is how they depict Jesus' lack of energy after His, his ministry, when He's just flat out exhausted. And I could imagine that. I've been there. Some of you have been there. So what did he do in those moments? He retreated. He rested. He took time away from the pressures of all of that day-to-day, hands-on healing ministry, preaching ministry. He retreated. That's an evidence of his full humanity. He's fully human. How about this? Jesus engaged in personal prayer and he worshiped. Regularly at a local synagogue. Again, if anybody didn't need to pray, it would have been Jesus. Why did Jesus pray? Have you ever really thought about that? Why did God incarnate pray to God the Father? I, I, I don't want to answer all those questions. I don't want to get in all those questions tonight. But I think at least two, two reasons come to my mind. One, he was human. And because he was fully human, he needed to pray. He needed God's intervention, help, strength through moments and circumstances. So he prayed. And he did that to set us an example. Folks, if Jesus needed to pray, if he did not choose to go on ministry and on life without talking to his father. And by golly, you and I have got to pray in order to make it through our daily experiences and circumstances in life. So Jesus prayed. He worshiped. Where was Jesus on Sabbath day? Not on vacation. He was worshiping in a synagogue. Oftentimes he was teaching in synagogue. Folks, if Jesus prayed and Jesus worshipped, He's setting us an example. But it's evidence that He's fully human. In other words, He did not suggest in His ministry anything of the sort, I'm God, I don't need these people. I'm God, I don't need these experiences. I'm God, I don't need these disciplines or practices. Why did He engage in spiritual disciplines? Because He was fully human. He needed it, but He also was setting an example. How about this? Uh, He developed close friendships with uh, Peter, James, and John, the Twelve, and others. He was in friendship with people. That's a human interaction. God doesn't need friends. He's God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been co-eternally existing from before creation And they will always be in existence forever and forever. He doesn't need anyone else. He invites people into relationship with Him. Jesus had friendships. It's a reflection of His humanity. The next one, He was moved with compassion. I can imagine God being moved with compassion. Scripture references 
uh, times where God, sh- you know, seems to display some kind of emotive language to describe his love for his people or his frustration and anger at his people for sin. But when Jesus walked on planet earth, the emotions that we typically experience were things he experienced too. He cried at John's death, or at Lazarus' death rather. He was moved with compassion. He was angered at sinful situations. He was just as full of emotion as you and I would be. He was fully human. How about this? He was tempted. One indication of Jesus' absolute full humanity is the fact that he was tempted. The book of Hebrews says he was tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. You can see that in Hebrews 2.18 as well as Hebrews 4.15. He was tempted, but he did not sin. He was tempted in the, in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4. Several things about that that stand out. One of the things that oftentimes we do when we look at the Matthew 4 text is we read it so that we can discover insights about how to withstand temptation. And Jesus gives us an incredibly good model here. Why? Because he faced temptation not as God. He faced temptation as man. He was fully God in the moment. But if you notice how Jesus interacted with the devil... He did not send the devil away as if he is the sovereign of the universe and the devil has to leave at his word. He didn't use his deity in order to withstand the temptation. What did he do? Some of you read that text. He he did what? He quoted scripture. The way Jesus dealt with temptation is the same way that he models for us to deal with temptation. Now, there's a lot more going on in the temptation text, and we're not going to unpack all the details. I do want to raise this because I think there's a week in the coming weeks, and I may have misspoken earlier, we're going to deal with him as prophet, priest, and king, which pictures this. One of the things that the New Testament does is it picks up on themes and types from the Old Testament to show how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what God had pictured in the Old Testament. For example, God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. You remember that story? He rescued them. They were His children. They were to be representative of Him to the world. That's why He gave them the law. That's why He gave them the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. But what did Israel do whenever Israel had an opportunity to reject God? They didn't believe God. They failed. If you look at the temptation text for just a second, Matthew chapter 4 The devil came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That's a quote directly from Deuteronomy. And if you remember back to the book of Genesis, where did Adam and Eve sin? What was their first sin? It was with food. Okay. Where was Israel's sin in the wilderness? It was with food. God, you brought us out into this land and we don't have anything to eat. And they didn't trust God. They begged for bread. They begged for quail. They were tired of quail. Excuse me, tired of bread, so they asked for quail. In other words, their sin was with food. And so one of the things that's going on in the temptation text is it's not just here's how you deal with temptation. It is Jesus taking on the idea that he is the new Israel. He is what Israel could not be. He's the perfect human where Israel was a failed humanity. 
Where Adam was failed humanity, Jesus is not failed humanity. He is the one who took on the same temptations that Adam faced, the same temptations Israel faced, and he succeeded where they failed. It's a beautiful picture of exactly who Jesus is. In fact, if you look at the text, in Matthew 4, he was led by the Spirit where? In the wilderness? That's where Israel was when Israel sinned. And the contrast is Adam and Eve were in a garden, not in a wilderness, and they still sinned. But Jesus in the middle of the wilderness, just like the Israelites, they were there 40 years, he was there 40 days. There's an intentional depiction of Jesus being representative of the people of Israel. And of course, the next quotes, he will, uh, Jesus, Jesus quoted again, You shall not put the Lord your God to the text in verse 7. He said in verse 10, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only shall you serve. Jesus is quoting from the book of Deuteronomy and all of those occasions. And he's quoting in places where the people of Israel sinned against God. So Jesus is saying, you know, here's what you need to know. I'm dealing with these sins and temptations that are coming upon me. I'm dealing with them not as God. I'm not throwing them away. I'm not casting them off. I'm not defeating the the devil by striking him down in my deity. I am facing the devil in my humanity in his hunger, in his state of separation, in his state of isolation with Scripture. That's Jesus' full humanity. Why was his humanity necessary? The next paragraph, uh, we'll walk, uh, walk through it and I'll fill in the text here. Jesus' humanity was necessary first to represent us. If Jesus was not fully human, then he couldn't serve as our representative. If he couldn't serve as our representative, then you and I might as well not experience salvation. Because we wouldn't. There's no one to represent us. Adam represented us and brought sin in the world. And if you want to go back and see how Israel represented the human race, they failed and failed and failed, and we would have done nothing different. We need a new representative. But that representative has to be us or like us. And that's what Jesus did. He came as fully human in order to represent us. To go further, he had to be human in order to be our substitute. The only one that could take our place is someone that is like us. God made us in his image, but Jesus came to be like man in order to take our place. Hebrews 2 talks about this. We'll work, uh, we'll look at this particular text uh, this upcoming Sunday in our, in our, in our sermon through, or our, our study through Hebrews, where Jesus is our substitute. He takes our place. He steps in the way between us and God. In order, he had to do that in order to be or he had to be human in order to do that. He is flesh and blood. Like us, he's flesh and blood so that he could be our substitute. He needed to be fully human in order to be the one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul talks about this. We needed someone to stand in between us and represent us as a high priest. To, to say to God, these are redeemed by me. And to say to us, here's the way for you to make it to God. I think this is one of the greatest truths of Christmas, folks. God knew we needed to meet Him. But He did not wait on us to keep the appointment. He came. He initiated the conversation. He initiated the relationship. I mean, think about it. God could have rightly said to all of us, Be righteous, make it to me. And we would have never met God because we would have never been righteous enough to enter His presence. 
So what did God do? He took the step we couldn't take. He sent Jesus in human flesh. Why? To be a mediator between us and God. God is holy and righteous and demands perfection. Jesus came to be that, the representative of absolute perfection to be our mediator. He also came to be our example. To be our example, 1 John 2, 6, the reason he's fully human is to show us what it's like to be a, a, a Christian. To show us what it's like to, to live a life that is obedient to God, o- obeying in righteousness, a life that loves others, a life that, that believes in God and trusts in God. The book of 1 John is a wonderful book. It's, a, it's one of those letters... Uh, eventually, at some point, as I'm your pastor, I'll probably be preaching through the text of 1 John. It is a beautiful text of Scripture. Because it tells us how we can know we're a follower of Christ. How we can know we're saved. And 1 John basically says, you know you're a follower of Jesus if you believe the right things about Jesus. If you love other people and if you practice righteousness. That's the bottom line. Well, what did Jesus do? He came to show us that. He gave us the Sermon on the Mount. A beautiful text of Scripture. Have you ever tried to live that? I hope you have, because we're told to. But, you know, you start getting through, getting, getting there in that section, you know, do not murder. Well, we can probably check that one off the list. Most of us are not murderers. But Jesus said, you have anger in your heart, hate in your heart toward a brother. You've committed murder already. And then, man, we're, I just did that yesterday with my kids. I mean, I, I just blew it. I blew that part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And don't, don't laugh too much, because I know some of you, the only reason you're, you're blessed and laughing is because you have grandkids now. And so the anger you express toward your children, you don't express toward your grandchildren. You, you love those little tykes and, and tots. Uh, and, and, and you're thankful that that may not be a struggle that you have. I'm thankful for that too. One of these days, that'll be me. But nevertheless, uh, we sin, we mess up. Jesus came to live the sermon. To be the sermon, to show us, here's what this looks like. And beloved, what God wants for us, Romans 8, 29, He wants to conform us into His image. You ever wondered why you're still here? Why God didn't just take you to heaven when He saved you? You're still here to look like Jesus. The reason you are walking planet earth is so that God will make you into the likeness of Christ. We've got a long way to go, but he's our example. That's why we're to follow him. That's why we're to to let him guide the way that we behave. And we're all in a process of that. None of us are where we ought to be. Some of us are a lot further along than we used to be, right? There's a level of spiritual maturity and growth that's happening. But God is working on us until he makes us in the image of Jesus. He's our example. How about this? He, his humanity was fully necessary in order to be the pattern for our redeemed bodies. 1 John also says this, We will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. One day, you're going to get a glorified body. Some of you are saying, oh man, that's fantastic. Because I'm not a fan of the one I got. At least I'm not a fan of the stuff that I'm dealing with and the one I've got. And we all have, we all have things that frustrate us about the way we look or the way we feel or the health challenges that we get. I just want to tell you, when we get the body that Jesus will give us, it'll be a glorified body. I don't know what all it's going to include. We could spend a lot of time talking about it. 
Uh, some would suggest that, that it's going to be a body that does, it's not limited by space and time because Jesus could just kind of appear and show up. That'd be kind of neat if that's the way it is. It certainly will not be a body that dies. It certainly will not be a body that's diseased. It's a pattern, something we get to look forward to. I have no idea if you'll keep your scars in your glorified body, but I do want to remind you that Jesus will keep His. And so whatever our glorified bodies look like, we can look at the scars of Jesus and know who paid for the body that we get. He's the pattern for our redeemed bodies. Jesus' humanity was fully necessary in order to sympathize with us as a high priest. We're going to talk about that a lot as we work through the book of Hebrews. Jesus came to represent us, to be our high priest. He knows. If he's been tempted, he knows how hard the temptations you are that, you fa- that, that you're facing are. Folks, if you have a hard time waking up in the morning, he knows. He had moments where he had a hard time waking up in the morning. If you have a hard time because you're in pain, he knows he was in pain. In every way, he was tempted as we are. He experienced all of the frail limitations of the human body. All of them. Every single one of them. He can sympathize with us. He knows exactly what you feel like, what you have felt like, He's able to sympathize with us. Finally, he, um, His humanity was necessary in order to a- enable us to live victoriously. I'll spend a lot more time on this Sunday. Well, I probably won't because it's a long chapter and a lot we're going to cover. But, but he, he took death so that we wouldn't have to be afraid of death. Folks, the reason we can live victoriously is because Jesus has already showed us how. And He's paid for us in order for us to live victoriously. Romans 6 is still true, even though it's a struggle. We don't have to sin anymore. Jesus dealt with that on the cross, and He's enabled us to live victoriously. We're just living in His power, not in our own. That's why His humanity was fully necessary. Let's move to the deity of Jesus. Uh, He is fully God. Fully man, fully God. One person, two natures. Fully man, fully God. Let me give you some explicit. These are only a handful. There are bunches and bunches of others. uh, Texts of Scripture. You need me? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting hand talk. Sorry. Uh, There are plenty of other affirmations of the deity of Jesus in the text of Scripture. Let me give you a handful. Here are some explicit affirmations of Jesus' deity. One would be John 20, 28, where Thomas said, My Lord and my God. So this is after Jesus' resurrection. He had appeared to the disciples. Thomas wasn't there. Remember, Thomas said, You know, I've got to see his, I've got to see his nail scars in his hand. I've got to see the, the scar in his side. I've got to see that. If I don't see that, I won't believe that he's really raised from the dead. Well, when Jesus showed up, he walked up to Thomas and said, Here, Here are my hands, and and here's my side. And Thomas fell to his knees and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus had had said on other occasions, he had had clearly articulated with other people that God alone was to be worshipped, that God was the focus of the attention. And when Thomas said, My Lord and my God, 
If Jesus was not God, he would have corrected him. But he didn't correct him. He received worship. He just told the devil in Matthew 4, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He's not going to be inconsistent. So this is an explicit affirmation of Jesus' deity. There are others. Look at uh, Titus 2.13. Jesus, or he's the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the title Paul used for him. He is God, he is Savior, he is Jesus Christ. An explicit affirmation. Uh, in Hebrews 1.8, of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever. This is an Old Testament affirmation. It's a quote from the Old Testament that is picked up and affirmed in the New Testament by the writer of the book of Hebrews where he says that the throne of God is the throne of the Son and the Son is God. John 1.1 1, 1, The Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. And, and then you move into that text where the Word is the agent of creation. It's an explicit affirmation of the deity of Jesus. Some of you have heard from, I believe it's Jehovah's Witnesses in their Bible, that, that they don't believe Jesus was fully God, and they use that particular text as a, as a reason for that. In their translation of the Bible, which is a bad translation, it reads, Jesus was a God. The reason they do that is because they say that, we, uh, that, the, that the Greek language should supply the indefinite article. Because in the Greek language, there is not a definite article in this particular uh, 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 translation. In other words, uh, it reads, and God was the Word. That's the literal translation. And so because the is not there in front of Word in the John 1 text, the Jehovah's Witnesses say it should read, and, God, and the Word was a God, not the God. But the Greek language doesn't work that way. There's only one definite article when they use a construction like that. In no other place in the, in the Greek text of the New Testament is there an added indefinite article. Uh, the word theos and the word word are in, this same, are in the same syntax. They, they fit together. And the only way it can read is God was the word or the word was God. That's the only way it can read. John is making an absolutely explicit claim to the deity of Jesus, regardless of what Jehovah's Witnesses say. On top of that, he goes on to affirm Jesus' deity in his acts and his miracles and all the other things that he did. We'll look at one more example. Uh, no one has seen God, but Jesus made him known, John 1.18. It gets at part of what we looked at in Revelation 4 and 5. You, you don't see a depicted God in Revelation 4. In other words, what does God look like? He's God sitting on the throne, but we don't see his arms and his hands and his, his imagery. But we do see God in the person of Jesus Christ. He's a slain lamb in Revelation chapter 5. Jesus made God known. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. I, I don't know exactly what that will mean when we get to heaven and we are in the very presence of God. The point is that Jesus has revealed God to us. It's a clear and explicit affirmation of Jesus' deity. We could keep going. We could go to text after text after text. I think that's sufficient. I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm trying to... I don't think I have to convince most of you that Jesus is fully God. I just want to encourage you with these texts. Let me give you some implicit affirmations of Jesus' deity. Some ones that, that don't come right out and say it, but they tend to affirm it by what is there or what might not be there. For example, uh, how about the baptism? 
This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father says about the Son in baptism. Jesus is serving the function of pointing to the Father, beginning His ministry through an act of obedience. So baptism is an implicit affirmation. How about what Jesus did in Matthew 4 and also 9.35? He proclaimed the good news and healed diseases. And uh, those two affirmations form kind of an inclusio where Jesus taught in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Before he taught, he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and he healed diseases. And then after he acted, after the, uh, after the teaching time in the Sermon on the Mount, and after his ministry time, he proclaimed the kingdom and healed diseases. In other words, what Matthew's trying to show in that extended section of Scripture is Jesus began his ministry by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he inaugurated... The kingdom of God. So, so let me put it this way. I preach to you. That's my, my calling. I preach the gospel of the kingdom. Same gospel that Jesus preached is the gospel that I preach. But I preach what he's already announced. I preach what he's already done. Okay? What made Jesus different is that he preached with authority, which blew the minds of his listeners Go look at the last part of Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 7. The people were amazed because he taught them with authority. The reason he taught them with authority is because when he preached, he took that crippled person over there and he made them able to walk. And he took that blind person and he made them able to see. And he took that deaf person and he made them able to hear. And he, along with his teaching, he healed and did miracles. So what Jesus was doing was saying, here's the gospel of the kingdom. Follow God. Obey God. Follow me. I'm the new king. I'm the king that that, that is setting up a kingdom. I want you to follow me. And I'm going to prove that I'm who I say I am. And that my teaching is worth following because I'm going to heal and do miracles. So an implicit affirmation of the deity of Jesus is the fact that he had the audacity to claim something. But then he had the power and the authority and the ability to back it up. And you see that over and over again in all the gospel accounts. And we could go to text after text and story after story to indicate that Jesus is unique. I mean, he stilled the water. I mean, it's it's one thing to heal somebody. I mean, you look in the Old Testament, for example. Elijah and Elisha served a healing function. Okay? They, They laid their hands on people and prayed over people and healed them. Right? Nobody calmed a storm. That, that, that's not an Old Testament miracle. And yet when Jesus calmed the storm after he was asleep in the bottom of the boat in the midst of a storm, by the way, that should tell you something about how Jesus feels about your storms. They might be storms to us, but they're not storms to him. That's really good news. When he stilled the storm, the text says that the disciples were afraid. And they said, who does this? Well, nobody does other than God. It's an implicit affirmation of the deity of Jesus. Uh, Miracles, and I've really touched on that already, are an implicit affirmation, maybe more of an explicit, but they certainly imply that Jesus is more than just a good man. He's more than just a great teacher. He's something beyond that. Uh, And and he did not have to. Here's another thing. When you look at the miracle working, and sometimes in the New Testament later on, and you also look at the miracle working in the Old Testament, There is never a case where the person doing the miracle affirms that the power is within them. 
Never. They, they, they refer to God being the one that healed even if there's an instrumentation through a person, whether it's Elijah or Elisha in the Old Testament or whether it's John, uh, Peter and Paul in the New Testament. They don't believe that they have in and of themselves the ultimate authority to heal. It's only through the name of Jesus Christ. Peter, in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you to stand up and walk. Right? Jesus didn't say that. He just did it. He just healed people because he is able. It's an implicit affirmation. Uh, the forgiveness of sins in Mark 2. That wonderful story where the, the four friends bring, bring their, their buddy on the, on the mat, right? And they break the roof of the house up because they couldn't get in to, to see Jesus. First thing Jesus says to them. He doesn't commend their faith. He doesn't commend their effort. He doesn't even heal the guy. He says, your sins are forgiven. And of course, Pharisees got that. Got, we're all over that in their mind. They didn't say it out loud. Who has an authority but God to forgive sins. Jesus is like, well, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or say to, you know, stand up and walk. And because he told him to stand up and walk and he stood up and walked, he is implicitly acknowledging that he has also the power to forgive sins, which is something only God can do. That's why we go to God through Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can forgive sins. Uh, Jesus also received praise and worship, Matthew 14, Matthew 21, John 20, 28. He received praise and worship, which is reserved only for God. Because he received pra- receives praise and worship, um, then he is acknowledging that he is God. So who are we worshiping when we gather for church? God? Jesus? And the Holy Spirit. And it is appropriate for us to praise and worship all three persons of the Trinity. Now, when we get to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit is to point to Jesus. The reason is because Jesus is the person of the Trinity that secured and accomplished our salvation. The reason Jesus gets the primary focus... In our preaching and in our teaching, the reason He gets the primary focus in our worship and adoration and our songs, the reason He's the one we point to is simply because He's the one that came to make, bring, bring us to God, to create a relationship between us and the Heavenly Father. And the Holy Spirit's job is to bring conviction in our hearts to do that and to draw our attention to that. That's, that's why our focus in, in evangelical life, in this framework of evangelical life, Baptist life, our, our, our focus is on the doctrine of Christ. It's on Jesus. The Holy Spirit's job is to point us to Jesus. Now, the Holy Spirit does a whole lot other, a whole lot more than that. We're going to talk about some of that. But I think some of the some of where we get off base with the Holy Spirit is when we when we elevate Him to to the point where He's the primary focus. The, the Bible never makes Him the primary focus of the, the the Trinity. He's always pointing us to Jesus because salvation comes through Christ. That's the whole point. The Holy, person of the Holy Spirit didn't die on the cross. Jesus died on the cross. He's our means to salvation, which is why if we always point to Christ, we're doing a really good thing in the life of the church. If we always point to Christ individually, we're doing a really good thing in the life of the church. We're not going to get out of kilter if we point to Jesus. And if we affirm what the Bible says about who Jesus is. Where we get off base is when we are afraid to affirm what the Bible says, or we patently believe things that are inconsistent with what Scripture teaches. I was reading this morning uh, in my devotions, uh, the Second John, 
The spirit of Antichrist is the spirit that does not believe Jesus came in flesh. John was already dealing with Gnostic ideas where Jesus may have been some kind of deity, but not deity that is fully human. And of course, we talked last week about the Christological heresies, and they're all over the place in contemporary Western American culture. Jesus is all sort of things. He's a great teacher. He's a good man. But he's not God in human flesh. If we fail to affirm what the Bible says about Jesus, then we are going to fail to meet God in Jesus. We won't experience salvation. C.S. Lewis put it this way, Jesus is either liar, a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. The affirmations of the New Testament, he claimed to be God. If you're walking around and talking with somebody else who claims to be God, they're either lying or they're loony. Okay? I mean, we, we don't put people on pedestals that claim to be God. They're cultists. Right? They're, they're people we, we ignore, we run away from. So he's either a liar, he's either loony, or he is who he says he is. He's Lord. And the clear affirmation of what Scripture teaches in the implicit references and explicit references is that he knows who he is and he functions as God, acts as God, because he is Lord. Here are the two takeaways. That Jesus is fully human means that he can be our substitute. You can't pay for your own sins. Not ultimately. You can eternally, but you'll never pay for them. That's the point. The reason separation from God and judgment from God is eternal is because there's no amount of punishment that we can endure to sufficiently cleanse us and bring us to a place of holiness sufficient to be in God's presence. Can't happen. You're not powerful enough. You're not strong enough. You cannot pay for your own sins to a point where you have atoned for your unrighteousness. That's a misunderstanding of the holiness of God and a misunderstanding of the depth of our own human sinfulness. We needed someone to take our place. And it had to be someone who was fully human. It had to be someone tempted like us. Thank goodness without sin. It had to be someone who took our place. And because it's Jesus in human flesh, he can be our substitute. But here's the reverse, or here's the opposite statement. That Jesus is fully God means that his death is sufficient to cover all our sin. One of the greatest problems with some of the heresies of bygone errors, and even today, is the fact that they believe that Jesus is just a great human. Well, if all Jesus was is a great human, then we're still in trouble. Because a great human might, if, if there were a different process, might be able to pay for his sins, but couldn't pay for all our sins. The only way, the only way, that all the sins of anybody who would come to Jesus can be cleansed and paid for is if God is the one who suffered on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. I was talking to somebody on, on Monday night who put his faith and trust in Jesus. He had some church experiences, religious experiences in the past, but he had not surrendered to follow Jesus. And I could look him in the eye and honestly tell him that if he put his faith and trust in Jesus alone and admitted that he was unable to please God on his own, that God would save him through Jesus Christ. I preached that 
regularly. Other preachers preach that regularly. For 2,000 years, Christians and apostles and preachers and witnesses and missionaries have said that to people all over the world. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus and trust Him alone to be your Savior, He'll forgive you of your sins. He'll wash them away. Jesus said, if anyone would confess his sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of all unrighteousness. How is that possible if it's not God who died for us? That it is God who died in the person of Jesus on the cross. His death is sufficient to wash all our sins away. Because you know, it's not enough that the sins you committed prior to salvation get cleansed. You do realize that, right? All your sins have to be cleansed to enter the holy presence of God. Not just yours, but mine and the sins of people all over the world. The only one sufficient to do that is God. Jesus has to be fully human to represent us, to be our substitute. He has to be fully God in order for that promise and that proclamation and that message to be sufficient for me to declare to anybody who would come to Jesus in faith that their sins can be cleansed and forgiven. And that's why every Christmas we talk about the Incarnation. From different passages of Scripture. That's why every Easter we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's why we continue to invite people to, to know God through Christ. Because He is our substitute and He is sufficient to save us from all our sins. That's really good news, folks. Just is. So, next week we'll see you in the fellowship hall. Or excuse me, the sanctuary. I apologize. Um, this week we'll see you at church. Hebrews chapter 2, read ahead. And then uh, in two weeks, we'll be right back in here and we'll have kind of a, you know, here's what God's done in my life this, this year. We'll praise Him, we'll pause, we'll praise, we'll pray, bring some stuff before God, kind of have an informal night. And then the first Sunday in January, we'll come back and pick up on uh, who Jesus is. I, I misspoke. We'll talk about Him as prophet, priest, and king. How the Old Testament pictures, pictures those particular works of Jesus, what he did, and we'll look at him as prophet, priest, and king, then we'll look at his work as atoning sacrifice, the atonement, and then we'll look at his work as resurrection, and that will probably finish up our study of Christology um, uh, after, after the first year. Thanks for being here. Let me close in a very brief prayer. Um, Father, we come to you. We thank you for your son Jesus, that he is fully human, so he can take our place, that he is fully God, so he is sufficient. And Heavenly Father, I'm glad for the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross to save me from my sins, save us from our sins if we put our faith and trust in you. We pray, Heavenly Father, Father that you would um, work through us and glorify your name in us in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 